Well, good evening. Wow. Should we try that again? Good evening. Hey, there we go. Did you guys have a good fall break? The rest of us just stayed here. We slogged it out, you know, while you guys were on fall break. So we're glad you had a good time. Um, but welcome back. We're glad to be back. And we are back in... Paul's letter to the Philippians. So you can go ahead and turn there. Philippians chapter 1. And over the last few weeks, we've been wading into this letter. It's an astounding letter. And as I'm sure you remember, Paul is writing this letter from prison. He's writing it from prison in Rome, specifically. And he was not in a good situation. He had been suffering tremendously in that dark and disease-ridden prison. He was constantly chained to a prison guard. He was dependent on folks bringing him food. Um, It was not a good situation at all. Very, very different from the house arrest that he had experienced one other time. And in light of these circumstances, Paul loved this church. They loved him, the church of Philippi. And he knew that this church was tempted to wrongly interpret his difficult circumstances. He was burdened that they see see it rightly from God's perspective. The Philippians were clearly grieved for Paul. They were grieved for him just like we would be grieved if one of our leaders was imprisoned. Just think through that. If Pastor Brian or someone else was arrested and they were whisked off to Washington, D.C., and he lived most of the day chained to an unbelieving, cruel prison guard, our hearts would break, wouldn't they? if he rarely experienced the light of day, if he faced starvation or life-threatening infections, if we knew that the court systems were corrupt and they likely wouldn't give him a fair trial, if we knew that at any moment he could be killed, we would be very concerned, we would be heartbroken, we would be discouraged. And if we were in the Philippians' shoes we would be tempted to wonder how God's mission would continue if his main soldier, the apostle to the Gentiles, is stuck in the heart of a Roman prison, more like dungeon. He's stuck out of sight, he's stuck out of mind, and he's facing death. How would churches be planted? How would the gospel spread with Paul in prison? And then quickly, that discouragement would turn into fear. Now, why is that? Because that same system that took our leader, that took Paul, that same system is imperial Rome. And it's the same system of governance in Philippi. Philippi, remember, is called Little Rome. It's a colony. We would think things like, what if they take more of our leaders? What if they start cracking down on our church members who dare to talk about Jesus while they're at work? 
What if our unbelieving family members start ratting us out to the state? We would be facing not only discouragement, but strong temptations toward fear, wouldn't we? We'd want to just keep our head down, not stir any pots, right? Not make any waves, just survive. Why is that? Because what's producing this fear is the temptation to preserve ourselves. Self-preservation. And if we're just being honest, we don't have to work very hard to imagine a situation like that, do we? In Canada, faithful pastors have been imprisoned for their failure to comply with the state's demand. More and more regularly here in the United States, we're accused of abusive hate speech simply by reading or posting online certain passages of Scripture. When we speak against the lustful desires of the heart, we are accused of repressing someone's sexual identity. And that's tantamount to abuse. We're accused of causing psychological harm to them. Harm that's worthy of punishment, people are saying, right here in the United States. More and more, the evangelical church is in retreat. We're on the run, so to speak. We're stepping out of the light and into the shadows, backwards. Why is that? Because we're often afraid. We fear our loved ones being at risk. We fear being treated unjustly. And underneath that is we are tempted to preserve ourselves. Now, if we flip back to the situation in Philippi, um, in Paul's situation in Rome, uh, that, it gets worse, actually, for him, beyond just being imprisoned, as bad as that is. Paul wasn't only under fire from the state. He was also under fire from his own brothers, from some fellow Christians in Rome. As we're going to see, these, these pastors and, and church folks were jealous of Paul's notoriety. They were jealous of his following. They were opportunists. With Paul in prison, they put him down. They likely accused him of not being a true apostle since he wasn't one of the twelve. And they took that opportunity to magnify their own ministries, their own gifts. They took the opportunity to gain more influence for themselves. All in an attempt to make life even more difficult for Paul. Now imagine how that would land on the Philippians. This church that loved Paul was endeared to him. They would be infuriated. They were so endeared to the apostle. They'd think things like, how dare these self-seeking pastors do this to our beloved apostle? That must be causing our Paul so much grief. He is already suffering so terribly. Why are they adding this insult to injury? So when the the Philippians looked at Paul's circumstances, here's the bottom line. They were tempted toward incredible discouragement and incredible fear. So as Paul continues on in these opening chapters, or opening remarks really, opening paragraphs of this letter, he wants to inform this concerned church about his situation. 
But he's not just informing them. He's actually shepherding them to think rightly about what's happening to him. He wants them to know what's going on from God's perspective. And he wants them to see that God is not uninvolved. God is not caught off guard. No, God is very involved. He wants them to see that not only is God working in spite of the situation, but he is working in an even greater way through the situation. Did you hear that? God is not simply working in spite of his situation. Like, oh, it's bad, and God's going to kind of work around it. God, Paul wants them to see that God is actually advancing the gospel more through his imprisonment. So if you would, look with me. Let's just read the, let's read the text. It says in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed, though, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So instead of being discouraged, instead of being afraid, he shares these details so that we are deeply encouraged. So that we're full of joy and confidence in God for our own situations that we face. He shares these examples from his own situation so that we are emboldened all the more to trust God and to share Christ in our own situations without fear. That's what he was wanting to create in this Philippian situation. He was wanting them to think rightly about what's happening to him and see, how, see God's hand at work in it because they themselves were tempted toward the same fear as persecution was ratcheting up in Philippi. They were tempted with the same kind of discouragement to step away and out of the limelight into the shadows. And there's nothing that Satan wants more than a church that's afraid. A church that's afraid. You can think in Philippians, he's either trying to scare the church or divide it. Scare it from outside, from persecution. As Satan's roaring like a lion. Or as he slithers inside of it, causing its members to divide and argue and, and exalt themselves. And the last thing Satan wants is a church that's fixed on the gospel, prioritizing the gospel, confident in God, and boldly proclaiming Christ in the midst of this world. Because why? Because Christ is going to honor the preaching of His Word like we're going to see tonight. So I'm calling this message Progress by Pain. How difficulties can advance the gospel. 
And there's been a lot of this theme, hasn't there, <laughs> over the last few weeks in our church. Um, so you can think of tonight as sort of a, a, an example, maybe, of the message that we taught on Sunday in, in Boundless, where we were talking about the role of suffering in our lives. This is kind of a real-time example from the life of the Apostle Paul of how his circumstances are actually serving to advance the gospel. He's tracing this out, and he's making sure that we understand what's going on. So we're looking in our lives at, at how God intends to progress the gospel by the difficulties we face. And what we'll see is we're going to see three examples. Paul's going to share three examples of how the gospel advances even more through difficulty or even more through suffering. And his goal in the passage is to encourage the Philippians, and his goal is to embolden them to kind of step out of the shadows that they're, they're, they're involved in and step right into the light, right into center stage in Philippi, sharing the gospel boldly. And he wants the same for us, both now and to prepare us for the days ahead. So the, he gives us a few examples here from his own life, just kind of details, and he's shepherding this church to think rightly about what's happening to him. And the first example that he gives of the gospel's advance is what is happening in the imperial army. Okay, so we could say it like this. God is infiltrating the enemy's army. God is infiltrating the enemy's army. He says, I want you to know, brothers, verse 12, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, and here's how. Verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul wants to make sure that the Philippians understand that his imprisonment is not a hindrance to the gospel. It's actually the opposite, and it's quite ironic. In an attempt to stop the advance of Christ the King, the Romans incarcerate one of his main soldiers, Paul. But they only come to find out that God has actually planned it this way. It's all part of God's greater strategy. Paul's like a Trojan horse the Lord is using to infiltrate the enemy camp. He's going to influence Caesar's own military. And that's exactly what had happened. Let's take a little closer look at this text. In verse 13, Paul says that it had become known throughout the whole imperial guard that his imprisonment is for Christ. So what's he saying? He's essentially saying that Caesar's elite forces, this imperial guard, those who protected the capital city, they were learning why Paul was really in prison. It wasn't because he was a convicted criminal like everybody else. It was because of his connection to Messiah, to Christ. Probably didn't know what that meant, so they probably leaned in. They, they learned about Jesus. They learned about this man who had claimed to be God, who had done miracles, who they had killed on a cross, and who rose from the dead as the Lord of all. And it was that crazy message that had landed Paul in jail. Now, how do you think they came to realize that Paul was there for Christ? Well, there's probably a couple ways. Yeah. 
Yeah, talking to him. I think at all times, Paul had one of these imperial guards chained to him. At all times, around the clock. So that meant that for starters, that they would see everything he said and did. Complete surveillance. The guards would hear him pray and thank God for the saints, like he says he does here for the Philippians. He thanks God and all his remembrance of them. And they would, hear him, they would hear him pray. I have no doubt Paul prayed out loud, just for their sake. We know that Paul liked to sing also in prison. Acts 16, he did that with Silas. And that means then that they would hear what he was singing. And they would hear what he was singing about and who he was singing to. And when his friends came to visit, friends like Timothy or even Epaphroditus from Philippi, they would hear Paul talking with them. They would hear Paul's heart of love for the people of God as he talked with them about the church's struggles. They would hear him dictate letters like this letter to the Philippians. They would see how he treated the other prisoners. And so these guards were chained to Paul, captive audience, and they witnessed a lot just by default, just by being there. But in this particular context, here in in Philippians 1, it's clear that Paul did more than just live his life before them. He also boldly engaged these guards with the gospel. And before we just brush past that, like, yeah, it was Paul, always sharing the gospel. Prison guards are nice guys, like they're listening to him. That was like probably one of the most dangerous things on the planet at that time for Paul to do. These were not friendly conversation partners. They were dangerous men. Politically, uh, potentially torturous men, men who had direct access to the powers at B. This was the Imperial Guard. And those powers could give the order to deprive Paul, to beat Paul, or to even execute him quickly and mercilessly. And not only were the stakes incredibly high, but Paul was preaching an incredibly offensive and foolish gospel. He wasn't preaching some benign, feel-good message to these guys. Christ came to save sinners. That's the heart of the gospel, which means that he had to talk to these guardsmen about their sin and about how how their sin was against the one true God, not the multiple gods they thought they worshipped. And that this God had appointed his Messiah to judge them on the final day. And don't miss the fact that the gospel has very clear political implications as well. Paul was preaching about a king, a king that's higher than Caesar, a king to whom every knee, including Caesar's, would bow when the dead are raised. So talking to these guys took some guts He could easily be killed for insurrection with a message like that. But you know what he did? 
Day after day, he took the opportunities given to him to evangelize his captive audience. He didn't hold back. And what's amazing about this is that Paul was a normal human being, just like every one of us. He had frailties, he had weaknesses, he had fears. But for Paul, a deep conviction had taken root in his heart. He made the choice to confront his fears and to lay his life on the line each day. You know why? Because he truly believed, he truly believed that death was better than life. We're going to look at this more next week, but but down in verse 21 of the same chapter, he tells us that for him, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul knew that death meant being with Christ. And he says that being with Christ is far better. It's exceedingly better for him than being here. It's because Paul had a vision of what was coming that far surpassed what we have now. It's a vision that far eclipses this life in glory. It eclipses this life in joy and in fulfillment. And he longed to experience that life with Christ. And an execution would only hasten that experience for him. And so his greatest goal in life was not to preserve himself. It wasn't to get married as sweet as that is. It wasn't to have kids, as joyful as they are. It wasn't to have a good career, as important as that is. These are good things from God, things that Paul himself even endorses. But they are not our greatest goal. Paul's greatest goal is that Christ would be magnified in his life. Verse 20, the same chapter. His goal is that Christ's gospel would advance no matter the personal cost to himself. So he saw his imprisonment not as a hindrance to the gospel, but as a divinely intended opportunity He didn't shy away from opening his mouth to talk about Jesus to the guardsmen because at the end of the day, he was not afraid to die. And as you can imagine, a man with those kind of convictions caused quite a stir (laughs) in the midst of that dank, insufferable prison. The door of the Trojan horse opened up And the gospel came out and started doing its work among the imperial army. The whole imperial army, no less, is what Paul says. That's some nine to 10,000 men. And it's not just that they learned why Paul was in prison, like they got information and now they're understanding why he was in prison. They certainly learned that. 
But it's also that the gospel advanced. That's the language Paul uses here, is it's advancing. Which means that a lot of them were converted. They started believing the gospel. And eventually, even the Roman soldiers became part of Christ's army. And they took the gospel, he says, to all the rest. You you notice that in the text? It went to the imperial guardsmen, and, he says in verse 13, to all the rest. Now, who is that? We We don't know. He doesn't specify it, but we can make some educated guesses. These soldiers took the gospel to their families and friends. They took the gospel to the higher officials in the Roman Empire. At the end of this letter, we see that even members of Caesar's own household had become converted, and they were greeting the saints in Philippi. The end of the letter. So Paul wanted to make sure the Philippians understood this. Was he suffering? Yes. But God is in control, and God is not hindered. In fact, God is working all the more gloriously in and through Paul's imprisonment in ways that that would even transcend how, how God was working when Paul was free. And that brought Paul joy. And as we see this example, as we hear about his conviction, that does something to us, doesn't it? I mean, of course we're convicted, right? But aren't we also inspired when we see that kind of boldness from another human being? When we see that kind of courage and fearlessness in the face of danger and death? And Paul says it had the same effect on the church in Rome. And that's the second evidence that Paul points to, that the gospel is advancing because of his imprisonment. It's advancing because God is emboldening the church in, in Rome to evangelize. And he wants the Philippians to know that. Verse 14, Paul says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So not only was his incarceration useful to influence the the Roman imperial guard, but it was also useful to the church. Paul wants these Philippians to see that his example of bold gospel witness had an effect on the church. God used Paul's example, in other words, not just for evangelistic fruit in prison, but also in edification fruit in the church in Rome. Now, apparently with the rise of persecution in the empire, fear had begun to infect the churches. Churches, plural, like all over the empire. And Rome was certainly no exception. Rome's capital city. And Nero was the emperor, and he was growing crazier by the day. Not long after this, he would, uh, there would be a fire in Rome, And he would blame that fire on the Christians and would start a persecution, a brutal persecution, that would last 250 years. So fear was on the rise, especially in the Roman church. Fear that tempted them toward silence, toward retreatism, toward a survivalist kind of mentality. 
But something happened when they heard about what was going on in the prison. When they heard about Paul's bold example and how Christ was working in and through His Word in the Roman imperial guard. When they heard how the Lord was using it to bring people to Himself. And that had an effect on the church. The Lord used Paul's example to bring the Roman church to repentance. They were deeply convicted of their own fear, of their own self-preservation, of their own anxiety and love of this life, and they repented of it. They were so moved by Paul's courage, so impacted by his joy, it infected them as well. To the point that they confronted their own fears and began actively sharing the Gospel in the heart of the Roman Empire. That would be like us going on the offensive in a communist country. Paul says these believers were bold and that they shared the Gospel, quote, without fear. This means that they had confronted their own fear of death. They had confronted their own fear of self-preservation. And they had entrusted all of that to Christ. Now let me point out one more thing uh, in this text. Do you realize that having examples to look to is one of the ways the Lord works this kind of boldness in our lives? Notice the detail of this text. Paul says it's the Lord who energized the revival in the Roman church. It says that having become confident in or by the Lord. It's the Lord who's doing the energizing. But he didn't just zap them. He didn't just kind of zap the energy in a vacuum. How did he energize them? He used a particular means. And that was the example of the boldness of Paul, the another believer. It says, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. It's interesting, right? The Lord is underneath it, doing the energizing, and there's a means that they witness, whoa, Paul's been thrown in prison, and he's being confident there. And Paul knew this. He knew the power of examples. And that's why he's writing all of this for the Philippians. And for us. He shared this example both of his life and of how the Romans had responded because he wanted the Philippians to be similarly inspired to face their fears and continuing sharing the gospel in their context. And he wants the same for us. The exact same is true of us today, right here in Boundless. As we look to Paul's example, the Spirit will energize us. And as we look to other examples throughout church history, the Lord will energize us. And as we look to others in the body, right here at TBC, the Lord will energize us. And like we see here, it only took one very bold person to completely turn the city upside down. One bold person who had faced his fear of death and wasn't afraid to die. Sparked a revolution right here in the city. So, this raises a question that I just want to kind of ask. It's more of an aside here. 
Um, what is it, what's it going to take, if Paul intends this to be an example for us, what's it going to take to follow Paul's example here? To be inspired by his boldness, maybe. Well, here's, a, here's a few things, all right, a few thoughts of how we can follow Paul's example. The first thing I think is kind of obvious is we need to confess our fears and entrust ourselves to his care. We need to humbly and honestly own our self-preservation. My heart's just like yours. We think about suffering. We think about the difficulties that are coming to us. We think about the, the, the trials that we're currently in. You start having a family and kids, it gets harder. Because you start thinking about their well-being. And there, the fear can grip our hearts. I woke up in the middle of the night two nights ago. Uh, fear racing. Racing. Thinking about what's coming, what's the world going to be like in 15 years, what are my kids going to have to face, am I going to be in prison, am I going to be here, and I was terrified. Middle of the night's always worse anyway uh, for me. <laughs> and all I could do was confess that in that moment to, to the Lord. Father, this is sin. This is unbelief. Help me. Help me trust you. Help me see that you have me in, in your hands. You have my children in your hands. And all your purposes for me and my, my family are good. But forgive me for this unbelief. It starts there. It starts there. We have to own the fact that we are afraid and that we need the Lord and, be, and begin to work to entrust ourselves to his care. We're going to learn a lot more about that whenever we get to Philippians 4. Um, but I wrote that as, a, as an example for you there. You can study on your own. We have to start there, but it doesn't end there. Okay? We have to adopt Paul's convictions and make them our own. We have to adopt Paul's convictions and make them our own. Meaning, we can't just read this and say, oh, that's nice, and then just kind of go about our day and hope that we don't ever have to suffer. Because we will suffer, and it's going to come to us in increasing measure. So what we have to do is, these, these convictions can't just be Paul's, it can't just be something we read or study, we have to adopt them as our own. That's to be what we live by, and what we're willing to die for. So what are some of those? We have to know deep down in our bones that God is sovereign in his mission. God is completely sovereign in the mission. We've got to know, in other words, that his mission cannot be stopped. We saw that last time, a couple weeks back. Paul had a, a deep conviction about this in verse 6. I am sure of this. That's deep conviction language, by the way. I know this to be true. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There was no question in Paul's mind about God's sovereignty in the mission. His mission cannot be stopped. What God starts, he will bring to completion. And that energizes us in gospel witness. 
Because as we go, as we share, as we goof up in, as, in witness, as we get a little timid and we pull back, it can't thwart what God is doing in the world. God's sovereign. And he's going to use us to accomplish his mission. If we fumble around, if we, tie, if we you know, just stumble around in the gospel and we, we share it, you know, we just do our best, God is sovereign in the mission. People are not going to not come to faith because of you. God's going to override that because he begins work and he sees it to completion. We've got to know that God is sovereign in the mission. It can't be stopped. And we have to know, next, that obstacles are given to us to advance the mission. Very counterintuitive. Even in the word, obstacle. It's like, what is an obstacle? It's a hindrance to something, right? But not in God's economy. Obstacles further the mission. Obstacles advance the mission. Difficulties and trials exist to put his power on display as we learn to lean into them by faith. We learned a lot about that on Sunday and over the weekend and for the ladies of the women's conference, but the point that I'm making here is that for Paul, this obstacle wasn't something that God had to work around. This is something that God's using to advance his mission, and that's got to be convictional for us. So that when suffering hits, when difficulties drop, we see them as opportunities. All right, third, we have to know and believe that our lives exist for the mission. That's why God saved us. That's why he created us. Is to advance his mission on earth. Paul talks about this in the same chapter, chapter 1, verse 20, and then also in 22. He says, that his, it's, his, it's his desire, it's his confidence that, that Christ will be honored in his body, whether by life or death. So the, the honor of Christ is why he's living. Then he says, for me to live is Christ. And he, later he says that that's fruitful labor for me, which in that context he means the development of the Philippians' faith and maturity. It's God's mission that the church would grow to maturity. It's God's mission that, that we share the gospel with the lost. So these these we have to know that our lives exist for that all-consuming mission and that all other purposes serve this one great mission. In other words, your career, whatever you choose to do, in the various vocations that God gives us opportunities in, that that vocation serves the greater, the greater cause of the mission of Christ. Your family is not an end in itself. It serves the greater cause of the mission of Christ. Your marriage not an end in itself. It serves the greater cause of the mission of Christ. Your church involvement, greater cause to the mission of Christ. If there's anything else governing your life, you will seek to preserve it. You won't be willing to do what Paul did. Because that's what you're living for. We have to know our lives exist for the mission, by the way, that mission that God is sovereign to accomplish. And, finally, we have to know and believe that death is far better than the mission. 
death is far better than the mission itself. <laughs> We're going to look at this later in the, in the coming weeks, but he's pressed, Paul's pressed of what to, what to do. But his ultimate desire, what he wants most, is to be with Christ. That's not some lesser existence, by the way. It's a greater existence. And it's coming to be a, a, a full-orbed existence when we return with him, our bodies are raised from the dead, and we're reunited with our resurrection body in a new earth to fully and freely fulfill all that God has intended for his people in the new creation. That existence is far better. And death is the first step to getting us there. <laughs> it's not the end goal, this disembodied state with Christ, but it's that, even that, that disembodied state is far better than the current state we're in. It's far better than, than slogging it out, even for the mission of Christ, as glorious as that is. That's Paul's conviction. And if that's not our conviction, again, we will not risk it all for the sake of the mission. So, we've got to have the same convictions. We've got to adopt those convictions and make them ours. We also need to focus on confronting today's anxieties only. We've got to focus on confronting only today's anxieties. And entrusting tomorrow to Him and, and strength for tomorrow to Him. This is one of the greatest encouragements that's come to me lately as I've been doing a lot of study and thinking about maybe potentially what's coming to us down the, down the pipeline in our culture. And it's, it's this reality that, that the troubles of today are enough. They're what God's given me to grow me and to, and to grow my faith. And that he will strengthen me for whatever's coming tomorrow. Or a year from now. Or a decade from now. That the Spirit of God will strengthen me to help me endure that day that's, that's coming. And I only need to worry about, not worry, you know what I mean, I only need to focus on today, on confronting today's anxieties. And finally, I'm leaving a lot out here, but finally, I would say take risks for the gospel's sake. Because even if you're, you're sitting in a good church, you're loading your heart up with all of these convictions you're, you're going to battle on today's anxieties, and the only way that's going to get cemented is when you open your mouth and you share the gospel and somebody gets mad at you for it. That's the only way those convictions are going to really settle. It's the, that's the curing. It's the curing of the, of the concrete, so to speak, of those convictions. It's when you begin to step out and start taking risks for the mission. You commit to that church when previously you had been sinned against in the church and you're afraid of the church and you don't want to have anything to do with the church, but now you're realizing, oh, I've got to commit to the church. The church is where God's at. The church is what's... So I'm going to step out in faith. I'm going to do something scary and I'm going to commit to a healthy church. It's going to be looking like having the courage to identify that sin pattern in your life that's dominating you and you don't know how to get out of. And confessing that to somebody who can help you in the church. That's how these convictions are going to get cemented. It's going to look like you growing in that area and then identifying those unbelievers around you and begin developing love for them and stepping out in faith 
to share the gospel with them. It looks like taking risks for the gospel's sake today. That's the only way that these, that these convictions are going to be cemented in your life. So, Paul's example has stirred up the church to evangelize without fear. We've seen that. But apparently, just, just as Paul's example had, had stirred up the people positively to preach with the right motivation, others responded wrongly, with wrongly motivated zeal. What do I mean by that? Well, in the rest of this text, Paul will tell us that some people in the church were wrongly motivated in their zealous evangelism. Shockingly, these believers were jealous of Paul's influence and were trying to increase Paul's misery in prison. They were trying to do this as they magnified their own ministries above Paul's. And Paul's response is absolutely stunning. He doesn't react. He doesn't even call him out, even though he could have. Instead, what Paul does is he rejoices. And that's because he knows that God can even override wrongly motivated preaching. We might think, boy, the gospel is probably going to be hindered by these guys that are just selfishly ambitious. And that's definitely going to cause a lot of damage. I'm not saying it's going to not cause damage to them and people around them. But ultimately, Paul can rejoice because he knows that God won't be hindered. God will bring people to faith in Christ through even wrongly motivated preaching. And that's the third and final way that the gospel is advancing even more in Paul's situation. Now let's unpack this a little bit. Let's read it and then we'll, we'll unpack it. He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others goodwill. These latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the, sake, the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So, let's just unpack this a bit by bit, because this can be a little bit confusing. I know it was confusing to me, of just what is going on here in this text. First thing I want you to notice is that he considers both groups he mentions to be Christians. Might be a little bit, what? But grammatically, that's what he's doing. He's saying that from the one group of Christians in verse 14, the brothers, and those brothers who were inspired to preach the gospel, from that one group came kind of two camps. Those who were wrongly motivated and rightly motivated. So he clearly understands both of these groups to be believers. Now, next observation is I want you to see that both groups are preaching an orthodox gospel. They're both preaching Christ, he says. Now this is, a, this is a crucial, okay? Because Paul has absolutely no tolerance for people who twist the gospel. In fact, he says that people who distort the gospel are accursed. He says that over in Galatians 1, and he says it twice. Uh, very passionate about people who twist the gospel. And even here in our letter to the Philippians, over in chapter 3, he is going to attack these people called the Judaizers who add, they, they add things to the pure gospel of grace. They kind of twist the gospel a bit. He calls them dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. So, 
Again, Paul doesn't mince words. He even doesn't mince words in this letter. Distorted gospel messages send people to hell. They do not save. So, Paul has no tolerance for that. But these preachers here are not twisting the gospel. They're actually preaching Christ. In other words, if people believe what they preach, they will be saved. They will be rescued from God's wrath, and they will be transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So what's the problem then? Well, Paul says it has to do with motivations. One group is rightly motivated. He says they're motivated by goodwill and love. They know that Paul's really been appointed by Jesus. They're not doubting his apostleship. They know he's suffering, and that suffering is by God's will. And their proclamation is just they're rightly fired up about what Paul's doing and his situation, how he's being bold, and they're following in his footsteps. But there's another group that Paul highlights here, and they are wrongly motivated. Their preaching is driven by envy and rivalry, he says in verse 15. It's driven by selfish ambition and a desire to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. Verse 17. Now that's staggering language. It kind of like, it crosses my wires a little bit. You know, it's just like, how, how is this possible? I was like, how, how in the world could they get this off track? Why would they be trying to afflict Paul in this way? And as I thought about it more, I thought, wow, wow what, a, what a sobering warning. Um, just as a side note, kind of a side implication for all of us, uh, that we can get that off track in our blindness and selfish ambition as believers. Where we could be so desirous of exalting ourselves that we would try to afflict someone like Paul in prison to protect our own selfish ambitions in the name of ministry. So that is a sobering thought for every, every person in here, and especially those of us who are in ministry or aspiring to, to pastoral ministry. But how, how, what, what's happening here? Um, we can only kind of really speculate from some other observations, but here's my best crack at it. We know that the church in Rome was planted by Jews who were converted at Pentecost in Acts 2. Okay? So Acts 2, Spirit descends, Jews are converted, they go back to Rome. They came back there, they planted a very Jewish-oriented church where they seemed to have honored and practiced many of the Jewish customs. They weren't adding to the gospel, they were just practicing these Jewish customs in faith in Christ. Nothing wrong with that. They don't have to do that, but there's nothing wrong with that. Eventually, the Gentiles started coming to faith too in in Rome. But then several years later, the unbelieving Jews in that area, they'd been persecuting the Jewish Christians because they had forsaken Judaism. So they were hammering them and causing a lot of conflict, and Rome had had enough. You know, these unbelieving Romans, they didn't know what was going on. They just saw a bunch of Jews fighting, and they're like, you've got to get out of here. So that was their solution. They kicked them all out of Rome. Who was left behind then? The Gentile Christians. And they eventually parted ways with the Jewish customs that weren't necessary now that they're in Christ. And they were right. But when the original Jewish believers came back to the church, the ones that had originally planted the church to begin with, they came back, and you can imagine what happened. There was a lot of conflict, a lot of tension between these two groups, Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. 
And it appeared that Paul had tried to shepherd this conflict. He actually wrote them a letter at one point, the letter to the Romans. And he's shepherding that conflict. And you see that in Romans 14 and 15. And we're not sure how they reacted to that letter. But apparently some of these Jewish brothers didn't think that Paul was a real apostle. They likely accused Paul of being self-appointed. They were jealous of Paul, and they thought of him as an imposter of sorts. And some of these men were likely still in the Roman church by the time Paul arrived there in prison. And initially, they probably gloated in his imprisonment. They were probably pointing to it as, as evidence for their position, that he's not really a true apostle. But when they had heard of his success in prison, that the gospel was abounding, it likely made them even more envious. But whatever the case, whatever was going on, we can't be 100% sure. But we do know is that some of these believers were blinded by selfish ambition. At least for a season. And they ministered and they preached the gospel completely motivated by self. They wanted the credit. They wanted the recognition. They wanted influence. They wanted accolades. And Paul arriving in Rome had just highlighted their insecurities. And his success drove them to resentment. And it's a danger for all of us to be sure. At times we can all be just like this group. We can so easily serve others for the praise of men. We wish we had the gifts of other people. You know, if I could just be like that person. I can't. There's gift envy. The list goes on and on in ways that we resemble this group. But that's not why Paul includes this description here. Certainly we should evaluate our motives when we're serving, but Paul's point here is different. Paul's not writing to the Romans. Paul's writing to the Philippians. He brings this group up, this wrongly motivated group, he brings them up not to confront their motivations. He doesn't do that. He just says, this is what they're doing. He would have been totally appropriate to confront their their motivations, but he didn't. He wants the Philippians to see that God will even override the wrong motives of this group of preachers to accomplish His purposes. They are preaching Christ. And Paul is confident that God will work through them to accomplish His purposes. That is staggering to me. He is so transcendent in his perspective. Even though this group is trying to afflict him by their ministries, they are in the wrong. They are not repentant. He is not taking personal offense. Even though they're throwing shade at him as as a minister, he is not resenting them. In fact, he says in verse 18, he says, the ESV translates it like this, What then? It could be better translated, what does it matter? So they're they're trying to afflict me in prison. So what? Who cares if they're causing me difficulty? I don't matter. What does my reputation matter? Don't you realize that they are preaching Christ? Isn't that what matters? Philippians? Yodia? 
Syntyche? Isn't that what matters? Not our reputations. This is staggering to me. These people were in some serious sin. Sin that if they didn't repent of would cause massive problems. Paul certainly knew that. But Paul wants to show the Philippians that he is transcending all of that for something greater. Something worth living and dying for. Something that will produce joy that we don't know anything about unless we're there. And that's the advancement of the gospel. He knows that God can and will even override the wrong motives of preachers to accomplish His will. Paul's not saying this justifies their wrong motives. He's not saying that God won't hold them accountable for their wrong motives. He certainly will. What Paul is saying is that he knows that God can override them and still do tremendous good in the world, and that is worthy of rejoicing in. So what a powerful example in this text. Paul doesn't want these Philippians, or he doesn't want us, growing discouraged. He doesn't want want us to begin to doubt God's goodness or His purposes in the midst of our difficulties. He wants us to see them through the eyes of faith, to see how He's working to advance the Gospel even more through these situations. From the worst situations we can possibly imagine to the daily grind. And God wants us embracing these convictions so that we will stand firm, so that we'll be bold in the midst of this hostile Western culture that we're facing. Paul knows if we simply open our mouths and share the gospel, that his word will not return void. God will cause his word to accomplish all that he intends. And he will multiply fruit even in the midst of and through our difficult situations. Amen? Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful paragraph. What an example Paul is to us. And we would pray that you would use his humble, broken, Christ-exalting perspective his bold yet transcendent perspective to, to begin to tenderize us as we come into this letter of Philippians, as we hear Paul's going to command us to do these very things that he does in this letter. But he's putting himself out there in the beginning as an example to us of what this looks like in real time. And we pray that you would use, your spirit would use these, this paragraph in all kinds of ways in our hearts, in a bunch of various ways, but at the end of the day, that you would embolden us, that we wouldn't be afraid of difficulty, we wouldn't be afraid of losing a job, we wouldn't be afraid of being ostracized from a family member, we wouldn't be afraid ultimately of losing our lives for the joy of knowing you and of being with you in the new creation. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.